by consumers going to the manufacturers saying that they need something, we in turn are getting direct input from our customers saying, we need you to do this. And it's not just a checkbox on an RFP anymore. It is becoming a requirement in order to be a vendor of theirs. ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, on the ESG Report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. Today, I have with me Keith Diner. We are going to explore scope three emissions and a wide variety of other topics. So, Keith, First of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks so much, Thomas. I'm really excited to be here today with you and your listeners. Keith, could you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Sure. So probably in my early part of my professional career, I was more in sort of small business entrepreneurial activities, mostly in the supply chain field. And then probably after about 10 years or so, I migrated into some medium-sized businesses that were focused around reverse logistics and IT asset disposition programs for large businesses. That lasted about 10 or 11 years. And then probably about five years or so, I joined Jable and started helping their business teams provide reverse logistics and reverse supply chain solutions to our customer base. That might be a good lead in. Just for the record, Jable, the company I work for, is a global manufacturing solutions company. We basically provide end-to-end product design and manufacturing and logistics services to customers, as well as reverse supply chain strategies. So we don't make our own products. We make products for other companies. I have to ask you, I have never heard the term reverse supply chain. Could you tell me what that is? Sure. So typically reverse logistics is really trying to talk about the migration of product back from consumers or from businesses the need to take product back. The reverse supply chain is really not just talking about taking the product back, but it's actually the disposition and the management, almost the aftermarket services of that specific product that you're pulling back. So reverse supply chain is not just the distribution of a product through its system. It's actually the pulling of it back logistically and then the management of those assets once they're back at your facility, trying to either redeploy them, resell them, recycle them, et cetera. So what are your current job duties? After about a four-year stint doing what I just described, last December, I joined the sustainability team. There's sort of a, an ongoing momentum within inside of large companies right now, and Jable is one of them, to really create some structure around circular economy initiatives. And for us, anyway, Scope 3 is sort of inclusive inside of the circular economy initiative program. So we were sort of doing these services in silos, but it wasn't really sort of a structured program. So I came on board in December to try to wrangle that, (laughs) wrangle that process and create some definition around Jable's attention to it. Keith, as I study, as I listen to experts like yourself on ESG, I'm really coming around to seeing scope three emissions, measurement, reporting, and use of that data as a real opportunity for a wide variety of corporate initiatives. I wanted to start off by asking you if you could tell us what scope three emissions are and how they may differ from scope one and two emissions. In some cases, it's probably easier to say what they're not than what they are. (laughs) 
If you think of a facility or like a company like Jable, where we make products, right, in our own facilities, scope one emissions are those emissions that inside of our facilities that we would emit ourselves. So the greenhouse gases that we would emit either through our buildings, and it even includes emissions that are tied to transportation vehicles if they're wholly owned by us and so forth. Scope two emissions are tied to the actual energy that we consume. So if we are using energy to make products for our customers and we're by way of the nature of that energy source, there's emissions tied to that, then that falls into the scope two bucket. Those scope one and scope two emissions are direct emissions. Scope three is everything else. It is tied to the emissions from the commodities and the materials that we bring in to make the products. It includes the emissions tied to our commuters coming in to work every day. It's tied even to the products after they leave our facility. So it's the use of the product and the transportation involved and its final disposition. So scope three is a pretty large encompassing area for emissions tracking and certainly one that for reasons I just mentioned, has been very difficult for companies to get their hands around. What is some of the issues regarding recordation that are either so challenging or that customers, clients, or perhaps others would come to you and seek guidance on? Just by the way of the fact that there's so many sources of these indirect emissions, it creates a big challenge, right? So if you think of a company like Jable, we have thousands of vendors involved just on the product side. We have 270,000 employees approximately and trying to figure out all the different inputs of where emissions lie with inside of the, the value chain before it reaches our facility and after. It's a huge ask to acquire and collect the data. And then once you collect all that data and you, you're trying to figure out how to actually report on it, there's really no common singular way to report on this just yet. There are different aspects and there's some guidelines that are put out there by the CDP and the greenhouse gas protocol that sort of drives some ways to do it, but there's no real one set way to do it. So you've got the situation where you've got all of these potential emission sources out there and you have to tie those back into actual absolute emissions that are emitted and then basically try to file that into a protocol that's established and then submitted to the CDP and some other locations that manage and track this kind of data for corporate America. Maybe if I could ask you the flip side of this, why does scope three emissions present either the highest opportunity for carbon reduction or is there a way that scope three emissions, if recorded, can be used to help a company operate more efficiently? When you look at scope three emissions, especially for a company like Jable, they can account for close to 60 to even 90% of a company's greenhouse gas emissions, just because it's so broad. The value chain is so broad. If you think about ways where you can really have a high impact on reducing emissions, you want to go after the area that's driving the most emissions inside your organization. So scope three is sort of that big bundle that you could really target to help meet your overall climate action plan and sustainability goals as a company. So the opportunities are going to be very interesting for businesses, but you used another term a little bit earlier I wanted to follow up on. Sure. And that was the circular economy. Mm. 
Could you tell us what you meant by the circular economy and perhaps how scope three emissions might tie into that term? Sure. Circular economy for us sort of sits on top. It's sort of like the governing principle that drives a lot of the sustainability initiatives that we're sort of doing. So just as a sort of a a quick recap on circular economy, it's basically three parts. It's designing eco-friendly products in the beginning. It's maximizing their useful life at their highest value. So not just using it once and then using it for a lesser grade use later on, but trying to really kind of use it at its highest value in the, the ecosystem. And then to regenerate natural systems. That's sort of information that you can gain from the Ella MacArthur Foundation if you so choose to look. But I think in a traditional linear economy model of, of manufacturing, you make a product, you use it, and then you dispose of it. And the emissions are linear to that consumption, right? So in a circular economy, you're building a product so that it can not just be used once, but you're actually, you're actually designing in a system by where you can bring the product back. And when the original user is done using it, it might still have application for additional users, either in its current form or in its subpart form, if you will. So by designing in attributes that make that product more circular, you don't have to extract as much materials from the earth, if you will, to make new products that go out into the world. So I think really from a scope three perspective, what you're doing is by reusing products, you're actually avoiding more of that early stage extraction of materials that drive up emissions in the ecosystem. So, Keith, I have another podcast called Innovation and Compliance. And although the word compliance is in the title, it's really about innovation, meaning I talk to a lot of people who are innovative. And one of the ways that I admire innovation the most is when someone looks at the same thing as me a hundred times and they figure out a way to do it different. And it exact, sounds exactly what you guys have done. Yeah. You've looked at the same issue that me and hundreds and thousands and millions of others have looked at, and you've come up with this format and framework to think about it that to me makes perfect business sense. That's an incredibly long-winded way to introduce the question. <laughs> when you sit down and talk to customers and clients about this concept of the circular economy, does it resonate with them that, hey, we either have been doing it or we should be doing it, and there's a way for us to implement this process? Absolutely. So Jabil is a, a large, you know, multi-billion dollar business. So I'm speaking from our perspective, right? But people were just trying to initially years ago, trying to get their hands around what circular economy even meant, right? <laughs> and now what we're finding is that when we're trying to go out and engage customers on things that are important to them, it used to just be cost and how we can extend value to our customers. But now it's really building in this sort of eco-consciousness. Companies are coming to us and they want to be a part of this movement towards a greener world. And regulations and consumer input is driving this action. But it, it's not just something that's a feel-good service anymore. Companies are coming to us, they're asking for help. They're looking at this proactively, and it's a great way, I feel, to collaborate with businesses and for businesses to extend value to those customers that they have. Keith, one of the things that struck me about ESG more generally is certainly it's been around for a while. It gained a lot of momentum during the pandemic, mm -hmm. and the gains I saw 
we're not really in the regulatory space. We don't have U.S. regulators saying you must do this or you must do that. What I saw was businesses driving ESG. Mm. And you mentioned that in the context of the circular economy and how businesses have come to you and Jabel wanting to be a part of this. So I was wondering if you were seeing all of these concepts are really business driven. You mentioned certainly you want to be eco-friendly, but customers may want it. Shareholders may want it. Your lenders may want it. Are you seeing that sort of business driving or business driven approach to this as well? To me, speaking for Jable, it starts at the consumer and they're much more aware of companies that are trying to do the right thing. So if you are a computer company or if you are a medical device company or whatever you might be, consumers are going to you and they're asking and buying products that are more green, that are more efficient. And by way of that, these companies that want to make a device or a product, they have to then go to us as their manufacturers and say, our customers are asking for greener products. We need your help. So what companies that we engage with are really good at is understanding the marketplace and their consumers. And they're relying on us to be the experts on how to deliver these goals and these objectives into a manufactured product that meets that consumer's eye. So it's like a pull-through need. By consumers going to the manufacturer saying that they need something, we in turn are getting direct input from our customers saying, we need you to do this. And it's not just a checkbox on an RFP anymore. It is becoming a requirement in order to be a vendor of theirs. From our perspective, we're seeing this currently as somewhat optional in the business world, but is like everything else and like regulation, it's going to be a requirement just to be in the game. Another one of my observations about ESG more generally is that it puts together or knocks down silos that previously existed. So you have a more holistic approach to each one of those letters, but a more holistic approach to your company's business. It seems like the circular economy concept also gives you a much more holistic way to look at a product life. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, I I would say that with some caveats. I think what's important to understand is that in a large company like ours, we have different areas or disciplines of service, right? We have design teams, we have manufacturing teams, logistics teams, and distribution teams. So all of those parts and pieces sometimes in large organizations have trouble collaborating. But once you have a sort of a circular economy approach and you understand that there's not just a beginning, you pass the baton and there's an end, that it actually will come back to you at some point. I think what you have is more transparency throughout that value chain. And you start to do your service or your function that was traditionally siloed, but you're doing it with the awareness that you're trying to meet a certain ultimate goal, which is you know a circular product. To your point, it does connect some of what are traditionally siloed elements in a business, and it creates some more efficiencies and transparency, I guess would be the best way to describe it. Let me turn back to scope three, because I wanted to ask what four scope three GHG emission reduction strategies do you or Jabel advocate? Just in general principle, I think, you know, the first thing you have to do is obviously collect all the data that you can with inside of your organization and without in sort of with in your value chain, but then you have to measure it and analyze it. And, you know, there's an organization called the Science-Based Target Initiative. 
SBTI that really has some good information for your listeners if they're interested on how to target reduction strategies. But for Jable, speaking for Jable, the one that holds the most promise is the supplier engagement policy. And really what that means is a lion's share of our emissions for scope three are tied to the products that we buy, the commodities and the materials and the like. So by going to our suppliers and encouraging them to, to either use products that are more green, green friendly, by using renewable energies to produce the materials that they send to us, I think there's a real opportunity for us to drive down emissions in that process. And in line with that is that, you know, we can actually create procurement policies around their willingness to help us. If we're going to collaborate with suppliers and we're going to say that, you know, we're going to need you to do a little bit of help with us to get a greener product, and that's going to mean that you're going to need to start looking into renewable energy sources to produce what you produce for us. We're going to help you by sort of incentivizing you and giving you favorable terms and conditions or enabling you to participate in parts of the business that perhaps they may not have been able to have access to. So really that supplier engagement piece is a huge opportunity for us to drive out emissions. Since we are a very sort of technically technology-driven company, I mean, we can also really do some interesting things with uh, the business model innovation. So you know, there are ways to drive out emissions purely by analyzing the supply chain involved for one of our customers. We can change geographies, have more access to renewable energy sources. We can analyze logistics and transportation routes. We can use facilities of our own that tend to have more access to renewable energy sources. So we have this whole sort of technology team that has the ability to do networking optimization, supply chain optimization. It really helps companies squeeze out emissions out of their, out of their system. So supplier engagement, business model innovation through some technology efficiencies and whatnot. And then as we started dabbling a little bit with on the, the circular economy side, our design for services. So you can either do like design for manufacturing or design for sustainability or design for circularity. We can actually take a look at companies' products and say, you know, I know what you're trying to do by using this specific type of material. But if we use this alternate piece of material, has the same types of attributes, it could be just a different type of plastic. It could be, you know, a different alloy. What we can do is have a, a reduction of element to our actual end product. So by using a different plastic, we might be able to reduce the emissions by 10% of a product. By introducing, you know, recycled content into the product, we can reduce emissions that would normally be tied to bringing in virgin materials. You know, our design for services, again, in concert with everything else, has a real potential impact on driving out emissions. So, I mean, I'd probably stick with those three, but that's probably what's important to Jable. It also strikes me that in that process, particularly the design for services, that if a base mineral or other key component of your product becomes unavailable to you, either due to a pandemic such as COVID-19 or perhaps the geopolitical event such as the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that you can identify that and then you could move to an alternative source and you have a structure that you have described, which would help a company think through that. Would that also be a fair assessment? I believe that is. I mean, I think there's ways where we can look at high-risk commodities, you know, when there are 
either geopolitical or macro related effects, but it could be inflation related. It could be supply chain. It could be, as you said, geopolitical. I think we can look at those commodities that are at high risk, and then we can easily migrate to equal return commodities or parts, if you will, to increase or sort of subsidize the effect of the product. Sort of hard to describe specifically, but your point is well taken that I think if you have that flexibility and you have a backup system involved with your design for services, then when there are those geopolitical risks or these other sort of macro factors, you have the flexibility and the nimbleness to move into a faster supply chain alternative that will obviously serve the customers. Well, Keith, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself or perhaps any of the topics we've touched on or Jable, your company, what would be the best place for them to go to? Jable has its own sustainability report and some information on circular economy and sort of our climate action plans and stuff. That can all be found at jable.com. You can do a search up for sustainability and you can find that report there. I would also encourage people to go to the Greenhouse Gas Protocol website if they're sort of in the beginning part of their journey into Scope 3. There's some really good resources with inside of the Greenhouse Gas Protocol to help guide you down that process. The Science-Based Targets Initiative, again, is another one that will help really create some more factual ways to help reduce your emissions. And then the Ella MacArthur Foundation to learn more about the circular economy. Keith, I cannot tell you how much I've enjoyed this podcast, and I'm going to request that you and I continue this conversation. (laughs) I'd be glad to, Thomas, anytime. 